This is the Tribal Malfunctions Podcast. Tribal Malfunctions is a thrilling cyberpunk story of gangs, guns, greed, and the power of independent trucking set in 22nd century Boston. I am your host and narrator, Chang Terhune. Now join me please as we enter the strange world of Tribal Malfunctions. Welcome to episode 11, chapter 11 of Tribal Malfunctions, cyberpunk novel set in 22nd century Boston, and my story of guns, greed, terrorism, political sedition, treason, and of course the power of independent trucking as visualized through a massive underground network of vacuum sealed tunnels and uh, drone freight trucks. You know just like uh, the late uh, James Waller would have written in Bridges of Madison County had it been set in 22nd century Boston <clears throat> um, and seen more as a cyberpunk novel. Anyway, I hope you're all doing well. Wow, we're episode 11. This is cool. Some uh, interesting things are going to start happening now. I think interesting things have been happening all along, but I think right now especially we're starting to get into... Um, even more of the nitte gritte and i hope you're enjoying it hey if you haven't uh, if you're just tuning in right now and you need to catch up now's the time get ready get set and go Okay, doke great, you're all caught up, that's excellent, and that was Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo, rather, the Wonder Chicken from, um, uh, Florida. Yep, it's a real town, look it up, it's on the internet. Anyway, um, so yeah, episode 11. I realized I said last week, uh, that I was going to do a recap or sort of some inspiration for the, uh, genesis of the podcast, and, uh, I realized I didn't do that. Um, I may have to write about it, because it's kind of long, and um, I don't want to take away from the actual story. If I do, maybe I'll do it at the end. But for now, I think we're safe. Um, we're not going to do that. Um, but anyway, real exciting stuff is happening. So uh, without further ado, let's get into it. As always, there is swearing, so do not play it around the fucking children or the uh, fucking impressionable or people who get upset by words like fucking motherfucker, piss, shit, uh, cunt, bitch, piss, pussy, cock. Uh, yeah, all just the words that I really don't like to hear in general. And um, let's get into it. Episode 11, Travel Malfunctions. Go.
11, Plasticity. The following is from the Omnipedia article for Terry the Terrific, file path Terry the Terrific slash Technomatic Toys slash Fatal Toys slash Failed Toys slash Toys. Who's your little friend, son? This is Terry, mister. He's my protector. Why do you need a protector, kiddo? To keep me safe from stranger danger. Well, how does Terry do that, little guy? Terry the Terrific is the brand new interactive toy that keeps your child safe. But Terry's not just a pint-sized pal that walks, talks, tells interactive stories, plays games, sings songs, and snuggles up with your child. He's a fully functional AI with our patented Deep Sense capability. This allows Terry to analyze, interpret, and then act on the actions of adults and even other kids. Terry knows over 100 languages and 300 dialects. Our Super Terry model also comes equipped with a 50,000 volt taser that will activate when it hears your child is in danger. You can feel safe knowing Terry's with your child and keeping them safe even if you're not around. He just knows when I'm safe and when I'm not. Well, I have some puppies and candy in my car, young fella. Would you like to come and see me? The bad man is lying. No, I'm not. Come on over and I'll... Yes, he is. The bad man is a liar man. Better leave us alone, mister. I was only... No, wait. I was just... You leave my kid alone, mister. No! Ah! Ah! No! No! Good thing your boy had Terry here, Mrs. Lee. Otherwise, who knows what would have happened. Oh, Terry, how can I ever repay you? Maybe I can sing a couple extra songs at bedtime tonight? This script from the commercial for the short-lived toy, Terry the Terrific Tronic Pal by Technomatic Toys. Terry was available only during Christmas season 2109, and all units were recalled by December 30th, 2109. Lawsuits stemming from injuries and hospitalizations caused by Terry units bankrupted Technomatic Toys and sent their founder, Leo Spruill, into hiding for the rest of his life. Chapter 11, Yuki Core. She rose and got a bottle of water for herself and one for Aris. From a table in the kitchen, she grabbed a few pill bottles from which she'd occasionally take a tablet during their conversation. Every time he tried to help or offer help, Terry growled until Aris finally stopped and accepted the water before she came back to her chair. My father started this business about 25 years ago. He'd been in trucking back in Japan. Came here and worked his way up until he could afford to buy a few haulers and start his own fleet. Named the business after me. Nice daddy, Yuki continued. After ten years, he was starting to make some actual money. He'd bring me in after work or on holidays, and I'd sit up here while he worked. He noticed I liked electronics and was generally pretty handy, so he built me a little bench here and one at home. Pretty soon, I was modding the haulers and their navigation systems. Then I was making robots to load the haulers, and always tinkering with shit. My mother thought it wasn't ladylike, but my dad loved it. Yuki smiled briefly, lost in the bask of good memories. But, said Aris, 
and her smile disappeared. The chose. Little by little, they edged into the city, set up one shop, bought a couple more. Word got around they weren't legit, nor shy about it being known. Had affiliations with Soko, as well as some other ties to gangs here. Mafia, Russian, Lebanese, Syrian Front, Free Canadian even. None of them good. Pretty soon, old man Cho started coming around and bugging my dad. He was sort of funny about it at first, and then got creepy, and then violent. He'd always say weird shit about me. Chomo stuff. Chomo? Asked Aris. That Korean for something? Yuki laughed. No, she said. Chomo. Child molester. It got to the point where my dad would send me out or make me hide in the back when old man Cho came around. Whenever I came out, my dad made like it was no big thing, but you could tell. She nodded, paused, then whispered, You could tell. Aris gave her a moment to collect herself. Old man Cho died eight or nine years ago, Yuki continued. Then his son took over. He's even worse. My dad held out until he was the only non-Cho-run business around here. She waved a finger over her head. I built us a security system, but it didn't stop them from pulling stunts outside on the road and elsewhere. What did they do, said Aris. They trashed all but one of our haulers and claimed the insurance money. One day, Cho comes in here and forces my dad to sign some documents at gunpoint. A few days later, Cho came around to pick up the check, and my father confronted him, said he was going to the police. I was hiding in the back. She swallowed, then paused. Aris almost told her to stop, but she continued. I didn't hear it all, but they beat him. Badly. Then my mother stopped by with my little brother, and they beat them, too. Tears rolled down Yuki's face as her voice wavered. There was a scuffle, and then silence. When I finally got the nerve to climb up out of my hiding place, they were gone, except for Cho. He was just sitting at my father's desk out there, said Yuki, pointing to the bare outer room. Smiling and holding one of the smaller robots I'd made, it was a little dancing piglet I made for Daddy. Cho told me my family was going away for a little while, and I wouldn't see them again unless I cooperated with him. I said no and tried to stab him with the knife I'd been carrying since the bad shit first started. So what happened? Yuki cut Aris off with a look. Well, what else does a bastard like that do? Thinks his dick is a weapon. She shook her head. I'm sorry, said Aris. When he was done, and thank God it was quick, he called someone. Twenty minutes later, a couple of his boys barge in, dragging a doctor between them. First the doctor cleaned me up, then Cho told him to give me the standard insurance policy. This doctor, who clearly doesn't want to do this but has no choice, starts injecting me with all sorts of shit. As if I didn't feel bad enough already, I start to feel worse. When the doctor's done, Cho kicks them out and just sits there while I'm curled up on the floor with every inch of my body on fucking fire. Worst I've ever felt in my life. She took a pill, downing it with a gulp of water. When I was still conscious and just about at my worst, he opens this black box the doctor brought with him. Cho gives me a shot like he's done this before. I started to feel better. He gives me a pill and the burning goes away. What Cho made the doc give me was a bunch of diseases and shit, which he said he'd fully cure only when his business deals were done. Until then, I have to work for him. Plus, I have to take all these pills and shots or I'll be dead in less than 12 hours. What a sicko. Yeah, said Yuki. I can't leave here at all. Can't even walk without that rig I made, and that's only got enough juice for eight hours at best. One of the diseases makes my bones weak, 
and I've got chemically induced hemophilia, asthma, and cystic lung growths. Fuck, said Horace. At least I'm still hot, said Yuki. Can't argue with D there, said Horace, laughing. Thanks, said Yuki. Married but not blind, huh? So what exactly do you do for Cho, said Horace, ignoring her comment. He's got a bunch of front companies and a bunch of haulers, she said. Got him the same way he got us, extortion, intimidation, and force. He's running a bunch of haulers around like he does with old 4291. Made me alter all their navigation systems, made their brains slightly smarter. Like the AI in 4291. Hero, said Aris. Yuki shook her head emphatically. Nope, he's different. Special. Only put him in ours. Why, said Aris. Yuki either misheard or ignored him. I still don't know exactly what he's doing, but what you've given me helps me get a better idea, she said. The mods I've done shouldn't show up during inspections. They're designed to allow haulers to deviate from their routes and rewrite their paths to evade NTSB and Homeland Service watchers. I didn't really know why, but if you say there are guns involved, then that makes sense. How so? asked Aris. Yuki shrugged. Drugs he can get through in other ways since most are legal, but hard stuff like Rhino, Ouch, and KK gotta be hidden somehow. Hard to smuggle, unless you know some way or someone who can get you past customs. And then there's the weapons. You say those are Soko guns? Near as we can tell, said Aris. We? said Yuki. I got a guy helping me, said Aris. Yuki rolled her eyes. He's good. I can trust him. Yuki regarded him for a moment, then nodded slightly. Those guns are coming in, so something's going out. And vice versa. Guns for drugs, maybe. Drugs for guns, said Aris. Yuki nodded and made no K-sign with her fingers. Too many loose ends, though, she said. Still gotta put it all together. That'll take some time. So Cho lets you run free here? Asked Aris. Free? Said Yuki, with sudden anger. Does this look free to you? I'm only 25 years old, but I move like I'm 90. Can't go an hour without taking more pills than most people pop in a day. I'm dead if I try to leave here. That's some kind of free, huh? I'm sorry, said Aris. Bad choice of words. I, I mean, Cho doesn't watch over you? No guards? No cameras? Nope, said Yuki. The sickness is enough. And I also demanded that I'm not under surveillance. I sweep the place every time he visits. He's never put anything in that I haven't found. Hasn't tried lately, so... I, I mean, he's kind of got me by the tits, but without me, his shit all falls apart. And he has your family, said Aris. You sure they're still alive? Yuki swallowed hard. I get a video every month, she said. Run it through a billion different analyses, but all I can tell is it's done somewhere on the East Coast. They're okay, but she faltered, and Aris held out a hand. Sorry, he said, fumbling for something to change the subject. So what is the deal with the AI in the hauler? Yuki finally spoke again. Hero, she asked. Aris nodded. He's my brother. Aris didn't answer right away. People took up with robots or AIs and maintained they had meaningful relationships with them, but Yuki was so clearly attached to her family, she didn't seem to be the machine fetishist type. Your brother, he finally said. Yeah, said Yuki. I mean, at first I built it to play with Hero. Hero, the real flesh and blood kid, is eight years younger than me. Then after the kidnapping, I reprogrammed it to be Hero. I know it's weird, but it's not weird, said Aris. It's sweet. Thanks, said Yuki. 
I guess I'm just wondering why you put it in there, though. Why not have him here with you? Yuki made a gesture in the air, and the golden baby flickered into view behind her. Hi, Yuki, it said. The huge brown eyes looked at Aris. Who's this? This is Mr. Aguilar, said Yuki. He's a friend. Hi, Mr. Aguilar, said the AI. Well, you can call me Mr. A, hero, said Aris. Okay, the AI replied. It frowned slightly, but kept the beatific smile. You look familiar, Mr. A. Have we met before? Yuki glared at Aris. Maybe, said Aris. Maybe you remember me when I was working on the auto hauler? Oh, yeah, said Hero. That was in Boston, though. What are you doing here in New York? I came to visit your sister, said Aris. Cool, said Hero. Hey, do you want to see what I can do? Not right now, Hero, said Yuki. We have some stuff we need to talk about. Okay, said Hero. See you later, Mr. A. Sure, said Aris. See you later, alligator. Hero smiled. In a while, you crocodile. Yuki whisked her hand in the air and the hologram disappeared. Is the same one as in the hauler, said Oz. Yuki nodded. Yep, she said. He exists in the cloud, spread all over different servers. I back him up here, but he's a diffuse AI. All the AIs running in Cho's haulers have a semi-sentient version running. Hero is the only one that's fully sentient. Aris nodded. So, you have a plan? He said. Oh, hell no, said Yuki. She waved absently at his tablet and the information on the screens. You've changed everything. I was going to keep working until I could get my family back, but, but now... She went silent, twirling the ends of her hair in her fingers. Won't this put them in danger? Asked Aris. Hopefully not, she said. But I need to think for a while. I need to get them away from wherever chose hiding them, then get the antidotes I need. Gotta get the meds first. Can't you just use that for your meds? Aris asked, pointing to a grimy-looking faker in the kitchenette. Yuki shook her head. Proprietary, she said. I tried it. Almost died. Three times. Cho's got someone super expensive doing his biotech. Fucking bastard. If I can get that from him somehow, then I'm good. If I don't, I die a slow or long death. My choice. Yay me! I'd rather not... Ara stopped when a trio of red lights winked on above the desk. What's that? They're here, said Yuki, scooting the chair over to the desk. Cho and that fucking gaudy rolls of his. You better bolt. Yeah, said Aris, turning towards the door. Not that way, shouted Yuki. Get yourself killed, asshole. Go that way. She pointed to an aisle between two tall racks of equipment. Aris ran towards it, passing a snarling Terry. Open that cabinet. Aris tugged at the handle of a rusty door. It opened, revealing three empty shelves. I can't fit in there, he shouted. Kick the lower shelves, she said, struggling into her medical rig. Aris kicked the cabinet's back open into a dark hole. Now what, he said. Get the fuck out, maybe? It goes down to an old basement. Go north a couple hundred feet, then left at the end. You come out right near a train station. Get an Amtrak train outside of the city in New Rochelle or something. What about us, he said. What about the plan? Need to think about it, she said, eyeing the monitors. I'll be in touch. Don't wait too long, said Aris. There was a bang out in the warehouse space, then the clang of a bell. Get the hell out of here, she hissed. Aris crawled into the hole. When the cabinet's false back shut behind him, he found himself swathed in darkness. He scuttled forward, away from the strange girl with the blue hair, her malicious robot bear, and all her pills. His eyes didn't adjust well to the darkness, inky depths. He patted his pockets down for the glasses, 
hoping to use their night vision, then realized they'd been torn off his face and lay on the warehouse floor. Then he remembered his tablet sitting on Yuki's desk. The glasses couldn't be traced to him unless someone tried a DNA analysis, but the tablet had everything on it, including his personal information. If Cho or his boys found it, then Aris was doomed. He'd be safer if he turned himself over to the cops, or maybe his sister out on Governor's Island. His tablet also had a light he could use to find his way out. Aris fished through his pockets until he came up with his phone. Flicking the screen on, he locked his tablet up remotely, then flipped on the phone's light. He stood in an ancient brick tunnel, at least 200 years old. Cobwebs covered the bricks and in some places blocked his way. It smelled metallic and cold with wet stone. His light didn't shine very far, so all he could see was the muddy floor and the cobwebs. No rats, fortunately. He moved along, eager to put distance between himself and Yukikor. At the end of the tunnel, he turned left, as Yuki said, where at the end of that tunnel, he found a pair of doors. Aris listened before carefully opening them. Night made the transition to the surface easier on his eyes. He was in an alley between two buildings. He made his way up some stairs cluttered with broken glass and trash, stopping at the corner of a building. Before him, he could see only apartments and closed shops. He heard city noise around him and the screech of train brakes from a nearby station. Aris took a breath and stepped out onto the sidewalk as something caught him hard in the throat. Later, he'd wonder if the owner had amped up their fat suit so it would feel like a steel girder instead of a meaty forearm. Aris dropped and banged his head on the sidewalk. Voices laughed around him, then he saw round faces wearing sunglasses and black shiny coats leaning over him. This is a guy, right? said one. Yeah, said another. It's him. We'll pack the sack of shit up and let's take him to Mr. Cho. Arms grabbed him and slung him up. Aris tried to choke words out, but his windpipe was still unfolding from the blow. They carried him towards a gleaming golden Rolls Royce hovering by the curb. A sleek black Dentaku shark sat parked in front of it. The Rolls rear passenger door opened before they dumped him in, then slammed the door shut. Aris rolled onto his back to see Kimo Cho staring down at him. Well, hello there, Boston, said Cho. What brings you to the Bronx? Kind of late for a baseball game. Aris tried to speak, but his throat opened only to croak. Never mind, said Cho. We got other sights I can show you. Get up off of the floor and have a drink. Jesus, you look like you've been rolling around in shit or something. I'll give you a tool while we talk. Aris dragged himself up, then leapt for the door. Even if it had inside handles, it was still locked. Cho laughed. Man, I got you here for a while. Don't worry, you'll get home safe and sound. Eventually. Aris sat down across from Cho and took the drink offered to him. Yo, crime scene! Cho shouted up to the driver. Let's roll! The car moved from the curb into the dark night.
And there you have it. Uh, episode 11, Tribal Malfunctions. Out of a frying pan into a fire, as it were. Um, and, uh, boy, that was a shorty. Uh, you know, I try to do these one per chapter. And some chapters are longer, as you've noticed. Some are shorter. So, um, I could jam them all together, but... Uh, you know, that's not how I'm doing it. I think it builds a little more suspense. You have to wait a week. Cliffhanger. You don't get too much of that these days in this era of streaming audio and, um, you know, instant gratification where we can binge watch uh, stuff. So, you know, unless you don't start listening to this until the end and then you can binge listen to all of it. Um, so, well, since it's a shorty, I guess I will um, talk to you uh, as I promised or threatened. <laughs> <laughs> to uh, discuss the origin of uh, tribal malfunctions. So, <clears throat> here goes. Um, long ago, there were dinosaurs. No, no, no. It wasn't that long ago. But it was 1988, so it was pretty damn close. Um, I had graduated from high school, and I was, uh, you know, one summer, I had... Uh, well, I'd, I'd read an article in uh, Time magazine about these... Um, boxes, these like shelters that were being built in San Francisco to house the homeless. Um, it seems ironic that that was happening in the 80s, uh, which was very much of a uh, you know selfish decade as we might all cast our minds back. It's uh, what gave us the birth of uh, Donald Trump's uh, fortune. Anyway, um, but they were building it in San Francisco, you know, and San Francisco now is like high rents and stuff, uh, incredibly high rents, I think, in the country and then home prices. Anywho, they were building these uh, boxes, these these uh, these constructions where, you know, people could live in them and they had basically had like lids and, you know, on the side and you could, you know, go in, and curl up or lie down and close the door and it was uh, protected from the elements. And I saw that as a young, impressionable youth, and my mind got to wandering, and I started to think about, you know, some application of that. And basically, I constructed a whole kind of, a whole story around that, and um, I don't know, some, something else. I guess I'm not going to talk about it here, because uh, I don't know, I may use it. But at any rate, I um, scrapped that world. I could actually reuse that now that I'm thinking. Uh, thanks, listeners. Anyway, so I scrapped most of that, but um, I kept the idea of a futuristic world with certain elements of it. Um, and uh, what was interesting was I thought up all these elements, and um, in 88, I sat there then that summer and started to write notes down for this story. And, um, you know, I, I had a big whole thing fleshed out, and back then uh, I was a young guy with, uh, you know, my mind on girls and Star Trek and music and not much on writing, so it was a little hard for me to get the story out. And I never really did finish, but um, I had the notes, and I tried writing out the beginning of it and gave up because girls, science fiction, and music is pretty much in that order. Anyway, and but it all stuck with me, and over the years I would see certain parts of the story, elements of this futuristic world come to pass, um, like, uh, you know, they would, they would become reality. Um, the first one was, um, well, there was an idea for like a discotheque where, oh, discotheque, God, that word makes me sound so old, a disco where you, um, uh, went in and there was no sound system per se, but you were given headphones that all connected to a certain setup, uh, like a singular setup where everybody was listening to the same thing, but it was being broadcast. Well, uh, two things came out of that. 
um, one, well, there were two. There was twofold. One, you had these discos where people were, were listening to music where it was broadcast over their headsets. The other was where people wore headsets outside because the world was so loud. The headsets had um, features, had electronics in them that, that blocked out the external noise, um, and they became, uh, you know, it was basically silent. So, of course, what happens? Um, one, you have noise-canceling headphones. Two, you get... Um, uh, Bluetooth and Bluetooth headsets so people can do this. Now you get like, you know, Sonic Forest or something like that or these discos where people, you know, all connect to it like a, a store, some Bluetooth headphones and all dance in the same thing. So that was like one thing that came to pass. I'm sure there were others, but I can't remember them just at the moment. Oh, like automatic cars, um, things driving themselves. And in fact, uh, the idea of the Wormway, these haulers, going in this uh, vacuum-sealed underground um, highway system I thought of back then, too. Um, now, <laughs> there is, uh, there's Mr. Elon Musk's, the great Elon Musk's Hyperloop, which is virtually the same thing, which is, you know, a vacuum-sealed um, highway system running through the Earth where uh, you are, um, you know, going underground and it's, you know, uh, uh, cuts down carbon emissions, things like that. You know, he came out with that you know, a few years ago, but I was thinking about it way back then. Maybe I wasn't the first person, but I certainly um, had it before uh, he did. And, uh, you know, never capitalized on it. But anyway, um, so I had all these elements. And years and years passed, and I was at a uh, reader con one year, and I met uh, this wonderful woman and writer, the, uh, the great Anne Renee Brown. And she said, my wife is creating an uh, anthology, and I think you should submit something. And I said, okay, I'll see what I can do. And uh, it was an anthology called Trust and Treachery. And I wasn't sure what I had, but then I remembered, oh, I have this old story. I you know, never quite really worked on it. I wanted to see what maybe, um, what about that old story I started off when I was a kid? And um, so I thought, oh, that'd be good. And I... Well, you know, now that I recount this, I'm not sure. I may have written it actually before then. But anyway, I had the story, which is about that world that I envisioned years ago with all those cyberpunk things and all those, you know, headphone, noise-canceling headphones and silent discos and whatnot. So I put it together, shaped it up, sent it off to them. They accepted it. I was very grateful about that. And the wonderful Mariah Crawford uh, edited that story for me and made it a better story. And um, I went to uh, reading the next year at uh, ReaderCon, where um, I was asked to read uh, that story. And I got to read some of it. Someone came up to me afterwards and said, Whoa, that was great. What's the rest of it? And I said, Well, uh, and I explained the whole story about you know, 1988. It was like, you know, um, almost 20 years after. He said, Oh, man, you should really write that. And they started telling the editors of Trust and Treachery about that. Murad, Crawford and her friend um, and Renee Brown's uh, wife, uh, Day uh, Mohammed, and they said, "Yes, you should. Yes, you should." And I was like, oh, "I don't want to. It's such a big pain in the ass." And well, I don't know about other writers, but for me, saying I don't want to write this and I don't want to do it is basically um, catnip for the muse. And the muse turns around and says, "Oh, actually." Uh, you are going to write it, and here I am plaguing you for the rest of your days about it until you finally actually 
go ahead and write the goddamn thing. So I did, and uh, it took a couple years and um, worked in what happened to Future Pop after that first scene in his life and all that stuff, and uh, lo and behold, it's become this book, and um, I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. So that's a little bit about the background. Um, gosh, I feel like that was a little anticlimactic. I don't know. Yeah, if you think it was or you think it wasn't, I don't know. Let me know. Send me an email. Uh, info at charlesrterhune.com. That's info at C-H-A-R-L-E-S-R-T-E-R-H-U-N-E.com. Or, you know, there's a link to the website on your uh, you know, podcast broadcasting equipment. Well... I think that's about it. Next week, chapter 12, uh, things deepen and intensify as they do in stories. So I thank you for listening up to this, and uh, namaste. Namaste.